From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. This is a special episode of Frankly Speaking as I am joined by four expert diagnosticians from around the U.S. addressing the start to the growing season in these regions and emerging pest and stress issues. Our Northeast correspondent, Rich Buckley from Rutgers University. From the ACC, we have Lee Butler at NC State. From the Midwest, I'll chat with Kurt Hockenmeyer from the UW-Madison. And from the Pacific Northwest, Emily Braithwaite from Oregon State University. Expect a lively conversation and the latest thinking on emerging pest and stress issues. My guests today are not simply able to tell you what organisms are on the sample you submitted, but also what is causing the injury or symptoms you are seeing. It's the same with spray application of products. It's one thing to know what to spray. It's another thing to spray it right. Right place, right rate, right time. Frost Spray Technology is a company built around giving you the ability to spray right. Frost has the latest technology for making your spray day a better day. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V.com. All right, Rich, welcome to this special diagnostics episode here, frankly speaking. We're going to go around the country, brother. We're going to start with you, Lee Butler. And then Kurt Hockemeyer in Wisconsin, and then out to Emily Braithwaite in uh, Oregon State. So you are the beginning of a whirlwind tour, and I probably have the most familiarity with the things that you see. But I want to start with this. The last couple of years, it's been pretty wet. And you especially, and we talk on Thursday mornings, you got a cloud over your head uh, the last couple of years. And we've seen, I think, uh, remnants of that in a lot more pythium root rot because root zones aren't functioning. Maybe emerging red thread issues. Maybe like a few years ago, hot and wet and the gray leaf spot uh, phenomenon that hasn't materialized necessarily every year. So let's start with there. How does a couple of wet, heavy disease years impact how we started out the season? Uh, that's a great question. Diseases are timely. You know, if you think of the disease uh, triangle, the weather at the moment often is the driving factor for the pathogens. So the first answer to the question is it doesn't have a whole lot to do with last year, what's going on this year. But that being said, if we get a lot of fungal inoculum building up in the system Mm -hmm. because we've had a lot of disease in the past, then when the switch turns on, there's a lot of more opportunity for pathogens to start rolling. And yeah, and that's exactly what I was thinking. Not so much that we're having that kind of pressure now because you got plenty of time to go see music these days because it's a little bit slow, but maybe the inoculum idea. Now, you know the literature a little bit. What do we know about this? I mean, is this actually something that happens that when you get a couple of bad years, like you might with Pythium in a wet root zone, right? Would it build up in high enough levels and be able to sustain itself year over year to then be a bigger flare-up when the conditions get right, which they invariably will at some point? I I think to a certain degree that's true. Something like Pythium that has a fairly good way of overwintering and surviving in, in like perfectly healthy plants. You will, we will find Pythium, uh, oh, spores in roots of, you know, almost every plug I could call Pythium root rot because I can find a O spore too in it. Right. So with pathogens that have a good mechanism for survival, 
we're going to come through the winter and into the new season with a, with a lot more disease potential built in. Okay, so we do see a lot of promotion in wet areas since the last couple of years have been wet. Early season pythium root rot prevention, preventative uh, applications of these products. Where do your recommendations wind up when you have to give them for this particular malady? Well, I think if you have an ongoing problem, and for most of our clients, it's a pythium root rot, you know, as opposed to a, a root dysfunction in right. a sand-based right. bed grass. Right. And so these guys that have root zone problems, you know, or poor drainage, or they hold more moisture, or if it's shadier, and, and it's a year-in and year-out issue, then we like to start when soil temperatures get to the 55-degree range and, you know, maybe 21 or 28 days with one of the pythium control materials may give you some prevention moving forward. Okay. All right. Well, since we're talking about the root zone, let's talk about maybe some root maladies that are starting to rear their head. Uh, last time we talked... On our weekly conference call, you mentioned something about take-all showing up in some places, which made me think, boy, when I look at the map in the Northeast, there's a lot of dry spots. You you go up along the east end of Long Island, southeastern Connecticut, Rhode Island, up the coast of Boston. They got a beautiful weather condition for Brookline in a couple of weeks if it keeps like this. But does this start to begin to expose these root problems from things like take-all and summer patch in particular? Absolutely. Anything that causes roots to dysfunction is going to become an issue as the temperature goes up and as the ET rates go up. So if we're not returning moisture naturally and, you know, guys are hold, hold off on their irrigation as much as possible, you could expose areas that have take-all or root pythium problems. And then summer patch, of course, is, is always uh, related to the, you know, high heat stress in, in July, you know, in, in this area anyway. Yeah. So absolutely, you know, as we dry out and warm up, you'll see uh, your weak spots. Okay, so we talk about this every year. We're getting better at dialing in these preventative applications for take-all last fall, right? And yep. and, and soil temperature timing in the spring for summer patch. And we've got a number of products that are effective at rates that, you know, are cost-effective to apply, And I'm told that I watered it in enough. Well, why then do I have take-all? Why then do I see still a lot of summer patch? What is (laughs) going on that if we're really dialing this in, why are we getting breakthrough? That's a great question. And and (laughs) one, I think it's really important, the first treatments, particularly for summer patch, if you're following the temperature model and you get your first treatment out at the right time. So sometimes the breakthroughs, if you evaluate closely, guys are kind of bumped off their timing a little bit. Mm. The other thing is the water issue. Are you using enough water in your dilution rather than hoping that you can irrigate the product in? You know, if you go way back to the research 30 years ago, the dilution mattered more than the extra water over the top with an irrigation system. It was better to apply more water with the product than to try to water it in. You know, I think that matters. You know, and then sometimes, you know, regardless of what we do, the disease pressure is so high or the stress on the grass is so high. You know, I, a lot of the breakthroughs with summer patch we see are from really, really high-end golf courses that right. have 
intense pressure for playability. Right. And so they there's a, a, a inherently higher level yeah, of stress. No, yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, you know, like the annual bluegrass weevil feeding damage is worse, you know, where the traffic and stress is. For sure, these things sometimes are just symptoms of bigger issues. But I want to go back to this season. What we've been seeing the last few years is we're getting milder winters as the earth is warming, right? We're starting off good, and then we hit a pause button. And it feels like every spring, Rich, we stare at the ground for six weeks, and nothing happens after we were all geared up and ready to go. And then it gets to be 90 degrees for a few days, and the soil temperature is all over the place. You're cozied up to some pretty good pathology people and soil people there, does this funky spring affect the timing of these applications or is it a wider window than we might imagine if we water it in deep enough? I, th- I think you have to be on the soil temp, mm-hmm. you know, and even if it speeds up and heats up, you're going to turn the fungus on. And we need to prevent the fungus from colonizing as many roots as we can. Now, if it cools off and the growth of the pathogen slows down a little bit, you know, it's still already turned on. Temperature is always kind of like the throttle. You know, you get closer to the optimum, the pathogen grows faster, and you, you back out of that window and it grows a little bit slower. But it's turned on. So I'm, I'm of the mindset when the model says go, you got to go. All right. So that's interesting. Let's switch to models here and talk about the dollar spot model that's been refined over the last several years by the research operation there at Rutgers. And you get out and look at the variety trials, I know you do, to see what's breaking through. How much better are we with dollar spot resistance compared to where we were just five years ago? I think we're better. We're definitely better, and it's ongoing. That's an interesting question. Dr. Meyer, Bill Meyer, would say that you know, the best grasses today are going to be way down the list in five years. We've been improving grasses at Rutgers since the 1950s. You know, bent grasses in the more modern era, but they keep getting better. And when you walk around the farm and you see dollar spots starting to break through, it breaks through in all the older varieties first. And the newer ones and even some of the selections, you know, and I don't want to speak for Dr. Bonos, but uh, they look better. And, and they're getting better for uh, greens versus fairway use as well, you know. So I think the dollar spot thing is coming along really well. And uh, in the end, it, that's going to make a huge difference for a lot of golf courses. And back to the model, because, you know, the original idea was somewhere that the 20% line would be a threshold of where you'd start to see it. And we've talked about this before. But I will tell you some of the stuff I've seen with my own eyes is dollar spot at 50% risk and the Smith-Kearns model, and I still don't see it breaking through in some of the varieties. And that's a game changer, Rich, when you're talking about large applications to fairways and immediate rough. You know, absolutely. You save a lot of money if you follow the model and then go out there and take a close look. What's it, 40% of the sprays you can, you know, in some of the research? Yeah cut a couple of them out, and and, uh, you got a couple more guys uh, weed whacking in the summer for you. (laughs) All right. Listen, uh, I'll get you out of here on my favorite topic you know of all time and with you, and that's nematodes. (laughs) 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 I did a whole episode with the great Professor Billy Crow a couple episodes ago, and I learned a lot about nematodes, brother. Where do you sample? 
when, which species, you take account from the wrong spot and you make an application and the numbers go up the next time you sample because you're sampling from a different spot. So all that said, of the many years now, four or five, we've had the two big nematicides on the market. Are you seeing more real nematodes as primary problems in the Northeast? I am of the opinion that nematodes can cause problems in certain situations. And I don't think we see more. Probably about 60% of the samples that come in are above threshold levels. And I use a pretty conservative threshold, you know, maybe low even for the Northeast. Mm -hmm. The new nematicides, they definitely do something. Mm -hmm. Um, They knock them back. It's not like Nemacure used to. What I see is shifting populations. Mm You know, there's a couple of nematodes that those materials control very well. Mm -hmm. And then we get like secondary pest outbreaks, these explosions of this one nematode, spiral nematode. Mm -hmm. If you summarize all my data through the years, spirals are the most frequently encountered nematode, but one of the least damaging ones. There's a lot that has to be thought about here, like how are you sampling, when are you sampling, you know, all the things that you mentioned. Right. What's your management level? Going back to the higher end, more intensely managed greens, and then are you following the label of the product? Right. You know, I, I got guys complaining they can't get nematode control if they don't follow the label. Okay. You know, so. <laughs> well, so. listen, let me get you out of here on this. It sounds like it's been a slow start to the season for you. And I'm wondering, you think we're set up for pretty good summer because we're not seeing a lot of trouble? I mean, when you're getting samples in, does it look like, uh, I'm not hearing widespread weevil damage. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody talking about weevils. Right. I haven't really seen like brown ring patch yet. Right. I'm a little bit worried about it being cool. Guys I talk to, uh, you know, that are sending samples that aren't growing because it's cold are also heavily, heavily growth regulated and very often under-fertilized, in my opinion. And, you know, with the cool soils, mm-hmm. you're not getting mineralization, mm-hmm. and the grass isn't growing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I keep thinking about the anthracno samples I'll be uh, looking at in, in July. It's very interesting. That's a very interesting setup. And also, that also doesn't take into account some of the growth regulation that's underway also stopping those plants from growing. Well, if it says one ounce, use one ounce, you know, (laughs) not three. (laughs) All right, Rich, thanks for taking the time to join me. Always enjoy chatting with you. Take care, pal. All right, thanks a lot, Frank. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Lee. Thanks for taking the time. You're our second stop. On our national tour today, we were with Rich Buckley just a minute ago, and now I want to chat with you about the Southeast, which looks like, to me, by the data, has been pretty warm and dry since November and certainly the start to the season. First, am I correct in assuming that? And then we'll get into what that's good for and not good for. Uh, You're exactly correct with that. Yep. So mild winter. So that means the bent grasses probably did good, the ones that survive in the south through the winter. Uh, and the Bermudas uh, maybe didn't even go completely dormant in some places. Was it that warm? No, it wasn't quite that warm, but it was definitely on the dry side. So that was the more concerning thing, particularly for spring dead spots. 
you know, recent research from uh, Wendell Hutchins out of Virginia Tech has shown the correlation with dry, you know, making spring dead spot more severe. And we've seen that in, in our trials before where the symptoms are more severe on the higher, drier side. And two years ago in our spring dead spot trials, we had a very wet winter and we hardly had any spring dead spot up here. And then this past year where it was really dry, you know, our, our research slots were completely devastated uh, by that disease. And then not only that, a lot of warm season grasses in our area, regardless of where it was, you know, regardless of golf, athletic, home lawn, whatever, <clears throat> where it was dry, but it was also very windy. So we had some desiccation injury. Wow. You know, not true winter or cold injury, but good, dried out. And it set a lot of warm season grasses back a notch. Wow. Uh, and there's still like, a, you know, a lot of uh, home lawns in particular, they're still struggling to fill in and get going like they should by this time of year. That's not a common thing, desiccation down there. It certainly hasn't been for a few winters, has it? It has not. Yeah, that's not common at all. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this spring dead spot thing. So does it seem odd to you that a fungus doesn't get worse when it's wet or does it infect when it's wet and then... The symptoms show when they're dry. Explain spring dead spot to me why it might be worse under dry conditions. Yeah, so, you know, the damage is done in the fall when those soil temperatures are between, you know, roughly 70 and 55. And uh, so basically, they're you know, they're damaging the plant just enough that, you know, when, when they get desiccated or dried out or if you get some really severe cold temperatures, that's, uh, you know, the final nail in the coffin that ultimately kills the plants. So what about the cool season grasses, uh, the bent grasses that you get samples with? How's the start to the season been? Obviously, the warm winter is going to be, you know, fine for them, too, warm, relatively speaking. Uh, did they play golf on them through the winter? Oh, yeah, yeah. That that didn't slow down a bit. Okay. They're as happy as they can be. I mean, bent grass has been really good. Uh, as far as samples, you know, they've been very quiet. I haven't seen many bent grass samples at all so far this year. You know, there's no complaints from that department. Those folks are gearing up for the rougher months right. of July and August. Uh, you know, hopefully they're getting their pythium root rot applications down and summer patch, things like that. Hopefully they address that earlier and setting up for a successful summer. Yeah, because it's just about to get tough on them. I got to say, I, I turned the TV on this past weekend and just took in every bit of pine needles I could take in. What a What yeah. a glorious bunch of days they had down there. Lee, I, I tell you, the celebration of Carolina golf was in full force uh, at that place. And it made me think as I was looking at those greens, uh, beautiful ultra dwarf mini verde greens. Boy, they looked bulletproof. You know, they were managing the moisture. But certainly when things are dry, it just feels like everything's a little bit easier. Am I true in saying that? I mean, spring dead spot notwithstanding. Most of these guys, the Bent and the Bermuda guys, would rather have it on the dry side, wouldn't they? Yeah, I, I don't think you, you'll ever meet a superintendent that uh, doesn't like to be in control of moisture, right? Right. So, yes. And these grasses can take it. The Ultra Dwarfs, you know, the Mini Verde on those greens. You know, you could see it wilting, but it's also going to come back. Correct, yes. And you don't have root maladies in the Ultra Dwarfs that concern you do you at this time of year not this time of year you know we're still seeing some chronic take all root rot lingering okay i haven't seen much pythium root rot yet typically see that later in the year you know nematodes now they're starting to munch they're having their effects 
symptoms are starting to show. You know, that's probably the greater concern in the in the long haul, but nothing too terrible right now. So, so right now, both, you know, this is a very odd conversation. Normally, the transition zone, it's never good weather for both grasses, but I hear you telling me it's pretty good weather so far starting the season heading into the summertime. For now. are you paying bills with samples that come in because everybody gets a little nervous if their operation is depending on samples coming in but i guess you can always rely on a fair amount of bentgrass samples coming in when the heat builds by august yeah i mean we get samples from all over so somewhere in some corner of the world there's something going on uh and and that's where the samples will come from you know it's always interesting they all start getting a lot of samples from let's say texas or california and it's like well, what's going on there, you know, and you can look at the weather and go back to that old good old fashioned disease triangle and that environmental side of it, and, you know, and it all kind of adds up. But, um, it, you know, in the Carolinas right now, things are pretty daggone good. And like I said, that can change quickly, uh, as we all know. <laughs> uh, but for, for right now, we're kind of in a sweet spot for both. Water management still is what dominates the discussion when it gets dry like this. Do you start to see wetting agent failures now that lead to other problems? Do you start to see that drying out, hydrophobic spots, even when there's good rooting? Does sometimes it get so dry in some of these soils that, you know, the wetting agent program breaks down and they lose the plants and it's not from a root malady? So we do see that. And I actually had a sample of that, uh, about two weeks ago that was related to that. But for the most part, we don't. I, these folks are so good with their wedding agent programs. They stay on top of it. And I, I don't see it nearly as much as I used to, honestly. Okay. I think they're just tuned into it. And, you know, with the deployment of uh, moisture meters being so right. widespread in the industry, I, I think people just stay on top of that so good now. And the wedding agents that are out there work so well. You know, you just don't see it all that much, honestly. Okay. All right. Let me take you back to the nematodes munching I asked, you know, Rich Buckley up in the Northeast. I had a conversation recently with Billy Crow uh, on this podcast just a month ago or so, and I learned a lot about nematodes. I was surprised to hear all the different sampling and thresholds and timings. Do we feel like we've got the ability to diagnose the severity of these problems from the numbers, Lee, or are we still learning? I think we're still learning. <laughs> this, this is Pandora's box, right? But, right. Um, you know, we've kind of taken the approach and, you know, you definitely want to submit samples for assays just to see which species you have and see if they're there. And then after that, you can't really get too hung up on the numbers. You just got to look at the quality of the turf, right? Mm-hmm. The things that I'm changing with my management program, whether I'm deploying nematicides, up in fertility, changing my watering schedule, whatever, does the turf look better? You know, that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Trying to get people to look at it from that viewpoint. More so than getting hung up on wanting to see the numbers crash. Will you eliminate a few things before you are confident saying it's a nematode problem, or are you normally dealing with nematode problems that are chronic at a facility? Yeah, so uh, from a diagnostic standpoint, so I, you know, I go through all the steps from always starting the foliage, go all the way down the plant to the sheaths, the crowns, stolons, rhizomes, roots. Just like, you know, going in for a yeah, checkup as a person. That's exactly doctor, right. right. Exactly and, right. And uh, make note of what you see and what you don't. Our lab, we're not set up. We don't have the equipment to uh, perform nematode assays. But there are certain species, especially the, the ones that are inside the root. So lance nematode, uh, root not nematode. If I see those, I will alert the superintendent and say, hey, you might want to follow up on this. 
But there are also times when the root system is so severely shortened, and you can tell that the root tips are necrotic, secondary feeder roots are necrotic and shortened, and you say to yourself, it just has to be a severe nematode infestation. And, okay. and it, you know, I just put it in the report, or when I talk to them on the phone, say, hey, send a sample to a nematode lab and see what you got going on there, because there has to be something going on there. Okay, listen, I'll get you out of here on this, and it has to do with uh, sort of the dry situation and getting enough water out in a drench application, right? We've talked about uh, a lot of root pathogens that'll probably be problematic moving forward. We might have to apply materials and get it down in the root zone, and you're part of a program that's been researching this for a number of years now. And I just chatted with Rich Buckley about this, and one of the things he said that was uh, reminiscent to me was that It starts with diluting the product out of the sprayer, and then you can help it watering it in. But maybe we should be applying it in more water. How do you feel about that? And is that sort of the pretty standard recommendation you want to give, knowing that what you guys have revealed is a lot of guys don't put on enough water with the irrigation heads. Are you getting them to try to apply some of these drench applications in higher volumes? Well, we haven't looked at that in depth. I mean, you know, we just kind of go off of all of our trial work that we do in the field, and two gallons is the sweet spot per thousand. Okay. I don't know that there's any benefit going any higher than that if you're going to water in. Now, I mean, if you don't want to water it in, then sure, if you want to bump that up, but then you're having to go back and mix the sprayer, right. more labor, more fuel, more, right. you know, yada, yada, yada. But I don't know if there's a benefit there. We have looked at backing off of that for foliar diseases like mm-hmm. dollar spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been successful uh, getting really good control at, at even a half a gallon per thousand. Right. But, you know, one, one gallon per thousand is a carrier volume works pretty well or works as well as, as a two gallon rate. But that also depends on the, the fungicide you're using right. and the topical mode of action. So, you know, contact right. versus systemics and all that. So it gets a little more complicated, but we've been perfectly happy sticking at that two gallons per thousand as a carrier volume for everything disease-wise. Okay. And then watering in for, for soilborne. All right. So that's the question about watering it in. With the research that you guys and the way you guys have been studying this and publishing on it, are we seeing this work better? Are guys adopting the ability to put on more water. Are they doing that? I think so, yeah, for the most part. I, I would say um, Pythium Root Rod is probably the better model for that. There's a couple of things. People are, are comfortable with that and the products that they have, right? So, you know, we've had Segway for a while now and when I'm speaking specifically about Root Rod. Mm-hmm. Now we have Serata, which is very good as well. Mm-hmm. So between the ag chem companies coming out with good products that work real well, coupled with the adoption of between the Kearns and I, we've, we've and Wendell and Cam Stevens, all of us yeah. pounding it in people's head about the Good. importance of watering these treatments in, that it's, it's stuck and people have, have accepted it. Yeah, and I'm happy to be part of that chorus of all those folks you just mentioned. And if you're going to drench, make sure you get enough water on because that research you guys did was really telling in how shallow uh, some of these treatments actually penetrate, even with a fair amount of water in a USGA profile. So getting that water down there remains really critical. Lee, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Really appreciate you doing it on short notice. And it's always great to hear your, your Southern accent. It just warms my heart (laughs) that we're going to get some heat up here soon enough. And I'm going to be feeling just like you sound. (laughs) I got you, man. All right. Thanks. Pleasure as always, man. So many of the issues that golf course superintendents face involve putting surface infiltration and drainage. 
Pythium root rot, for example, is a sign that your root zone is not functioning properly. If you are constantly sending samples to these fine diagnosticians, maybe it's time for Dryjack Sand Injection Services. Dryjack Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and allows for better rooting and better drainage by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local Dryjack service representative or visit dryjack.com. All right, Kurt Hockemeyer, we're making our way across the country. We started with Rich Buckley in Jersey, and then Lee Butler at NC State, and here we are in the Midwest at the UW-Madison. Kurt Hockenmeyer runs the TDL there. We just had a conversation about snowmold just a couple of months ago, so we're old friends. I was out there not long ago, and I got to tell you, it looked like a slow start. Now, I don't mind a slow start unless I got a lot of snowmold damage, so let's start there. Has the slow start slowed recovery from where snow mold was bad? Yeah, I guess it depends on where exactly you are. Um, We had very little any type of winter damage here in Madison, and so most people came through okay, but along the Wisconsin eastern border, like Milwaukee and, and north along there, there was several reports of winter damage. And so we're not exactly sure what happened, um, but some annual bluegrass kind of checked out over the winter. And, mm. and along the lake, those guys struggle anyways, because mm. the lake keeps everything cool. And so, you know, we can be you know 85 degrees here in south central Wisconsin, but it's 65 degrees or less uh, right next to the lake. And mm. so that was kind of a, a probably a double whammy for those types of guys. And so it definitely had some kind of an impact uh, depending on how well you came out of winter. Okay. So, you know, the lake does present enormous challenges all the way down to Chicago and all the way up to the guys at the Straits and, and up in Green Bay and Door County, right? That lake is one big air conditioner. Absolutely. Generally, and, and it slows things. Now, that said, even internally, it looked a little slower than normal, is that been the case, or has the growing season been progressing pretty well where there wasn't damage? Yeah, so overall, disease samples in the lab have been really, really slow. Yeah. You know, I keep track of growing degree days, you know, the accumulation of warmth every spring, and overall, we, it was a pretty average March, April, May for us. But the past few years, it feels like we go from about 50 degrees to 85 degrees overnight. Right. And so we almost haven't had a spring, so to speak, mm-hmm. the past few years. And so actually this year we are getting that spring. We've had, you know, a good solid, you know, three, four weeks of really great growing weather. It's mm-hmm. highs in the seventies, lows down in the fifties, yeah. plenty of moisture. And so if guys are getting that sun and that enough warmth, it's great growing weather. And there's been very little disease. There's been one trend of disease that we've seen so far this spring, and that's Pythium root rot. Mm. Not sure how familiar everyone is with Pythium root rot, but it is different than root dysfunction, which yeah. is probably what most people think of. Yeah. But root rot is mainly governed by excessive soil moisture. Mm-hmm. And so it can happen at a wide range of temperatures. It's that excessive soil moisture. Mm. And so why have we been seeing that? I think it's not because we've been overly wet here in the Midwest. I think it's because there have been a lot of very cloudy days and it hasn't been overly warm. So, you know, there's moisture in the soil from irrigation, rain, whatever, but 
the plants are not under stress, so they're not evapotranspirating very much, so that moisture kind of sits in the soil. And the samples that I've diagnosed as pythium root rot, they've got like an excessive thatch or mat layer mm-hmm. and just, you know, huge amounts of organic matter. And so that organic matter is kind of holding onto that moisture even more, which is allowing some of those shallow roots in the thatch layer to get infected with pythium root rot and take out those roots. And then these guys are getting some plants that are off color. And most guys probably aren't thinking about putting pythium fungicides down this early in the year. Uh, and so I think that's what we're seeing is guys aren't thinking about it. The moisture is just kind of sticking in the soil. And, and we've seen a few samples. I wouldn't say it's a major outbreak, but definitely uh, pretty much the only trend we've seen so far this spring. It's the third time I'm having this conversation today. Pythium root rot is pretty dominant discussion topic in all the regions. It's very interesting, Kurt, that it, of course, is associated with wet soil conditions. And even in dry areas like North Carolina, when they get wet conditions, they'll put on preventative pythium control. The Northeast, it's getting more common It typically is associated, at least what I've learned so far over the last couple of years and again today, is exactly as you describe. It's lack of drainage, whether it's going off of the top or it's moving through the profile. You got a push-up green, you might have layers, you have inconsistent top dressing, you have layers, you have excessive growth and not enough top dressing, you have layers, all of those layers hold water. Those plants get pretty fat and happy in those layers where they stay wet and lots of nutrients that will also mineralize in those layers. So what are you telling folks? Are you getting to the point where you feel like you've got to recommend preventative pythium root rot control? Or are you also saying, hey, you got to get the water moving through this thing? Yeah. So I try and focus on the cultural practices first because, you know, it doesn't matter how good a fungicide you've got. Like if you just chronically have those wet conditions, those layering like you like you were talking about, like that disease is just going to keep coming back and coming back. Like the environment has a competitive advantage given to the pathogen. And so you need to reverse that competitive advantage back to the plant. And so that can take time. It takes hard work. You're disrupting the playing surface. And sometimes that's difficult to sell to a membership or, or golfers. And yeah, not after Memorial day. I mean, you're not selling that plan after Memorial day. That's for sure. Right? Exactly. So I try and harp on those cultural practices first. And then, you know, if you know, you're going to have several overcast rainy days, then put a pythium specific fungicide down to protect your roots during that period. And then hopefully the sun comes out in a few days and and dries things up and you're good to go. Okay. So let me go back to something we started out with that maybe, you know, things were getting going. Uh, We started to have some good spring weather. I was there and it was 90 degrees and 90% humidity, just like I remember the summers used to be, except it was early May. It was a very interesting uh, spike in, in temperatures there. Uh, in the early part of May. But one of the things I worry about in the spring in a lot of places is uh, overregulation. You get seed head suppression, you get herbicide application sometimes. Maybe you do a summer patch drench or a follow up take all drench, fairy ring drench with something that might have growth regulation. Do you see much overregulation issues in the lab that manifest themselves eventually as anthracnose or some other malady? 
Yeah, we do see that occasionally, and I feel like we had much more of those samples my first few years in the lab, and it's kind of slowed down the past few years. And, you know, I wonder if it's maybe we were just kind of harping on it enough that folks started to kind of recognize when those types of issues started to crop up, you know, they start to recognize, oh, it's not a, a disease, it's, it's over-regulation. And so that could be possibly why, or or maybe just with going from late winter right into hot summer, maybe we just kind of haven't seen that in the past few years. But that has definitely uh, trailed off a lot from what we used to get. What about the other side of some of these issues that might be getting worse? And I don't know what's happening in the Midwest, but I can tell you, I've seen more red thread in the last several years than I can remember seeing in 27 years of looking at grass. Are you seeing a little more red thread than you used to see? Because we're seeing it actually in places where the grass is growing well. Used to be, ah, it's red thread. It's, you know, it's not growing. Give it a little fertilizer. It'll get better. Well, now we're seeing it start to take out patches of lawns and taller grass areas, fescue areas on teas sometimes. Have you seen more of this or is this maybe something that's confined to my neck of the woods? We haven't really seen anything like that. You know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but it feels like every year is just kind of a little bit different. Uh, there was a few years ago, we dealt a lot with Ascochyta leaf spot. We had, I just got a ton of samples one spring and we kind of talked about it and talked about it. And I think I've barely seen any Ascochyta since that one spring. So okay. <laughs> it feels like every year is kind of its own beast. And, you know, we see trends in, in one year that we won't see again. And so... Um, I haven't really seen anything like that, like you're discussing, where, you know, you're seeing major changes in in these uh, pathogens that you didn't used to see. Okay, well, let me then speculate on one more thing you said, and that is the preponderance of cloudy days. And not so much as drawing water off, but as limiting light. Do you sometimes get samples that just look flaccid and not vigorous and... Even, you know, with cool season grasses, they, they got to get sunlight. And if it's persistently cloudy, sometimes that looks weird in a sample. But we know so little about the effect of cloudy days and light levels on cool season grasses. We know a lot about light levels and daily light integral on warm season grasses. Do you think these cloudy days have other pathological implications, Kurt, from the things you see when you see a lot of cloudy weather? I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case because, you know, everything's connected, right? And so if you've just got overall weak plants from having, you know, several cloudy days, then I, I would certainly believe they're going to be more susceptible to certain diseases. It's definitely something that I suspect when I get samples, you know, what kind of environment is this turf grass in? Is it a, you know, wide open sunny green or is it a closed off, you know, shaded, tucked in the corner of the golf course green? And I rarely get the whole picture based on submission forms and pictures that people send me. So, you know, I can certainly suspect those types of things, but sometimes I don't get the whole picture. And so I try not to comment on those types of things if I don't have the whole picture. Ah, but you certainly will note when there's a microclimate effect, right? If you get a picture, you know, even when conditions are good, everybody's got those areas that are tough to grow grass, and even when conditions are good, you could still see challenges in there that would be good for you to have information about when you're making a diagnosis, right? Yes. And so that's, that's one of the things that I always try to stress to people is to give me the whole picture, you know, 
what is this green? You know, what do you typically see there? And, and sometimes it's like pulling teeth with folks. They want to give me as little information as possible and just <laughs> send me a sample and say, Hey, what disease is here? You know, and, and yeah. that's just not how diagnostics work. Yeah. And, um, so I, I try and harp on it, but I feel like I'm probably going to be harping on it my whole career. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> because well, that's just human nature. Well, listen, I'll get you out of here on this. And it's something that everybody's been harping on. And that is the use of the Smith Kearns dollar spot model, right? One of the things, conversations I've been having, uh, had it again, had it with Rich Buckley again today, is the the value of some of the new varieties and how much you see dollar spot in the lab because it's one most people can identify. How do you feel we're getting on improving our ability to manage dollar spot without calendar-based fungicide control based on the you know, sort of varieties that might be getting planted, the way we're approaching it with models versus just calendar stuff. Are we getting better from your view in the diagnostic labs, managing dollar spot with fewer inputs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of our goal here in the the research world is just we're always trying to get better, always trying to be more efficient with our resources and our inputs. And we're currently working with several great research projects that are multi-state, multi-university, where we're collaborating with other research groups, you know, know, across the whole country, essentially. And these large research projects, I think, are where some of the biggest gains are made. Hmm. Because we can run a, you know, a study here in Madison, and, you know, maybe we see some kind of effect and we publish a paper. But when you can have, like, six or seven universities replicate that study across the country, Hmm. and then you can know that this specific input is going to have this effect in Wisconsin, down in Mississippi, down in New Jersey. When you can see that effect across locations, that's where I think we make our biggest gains and we can kind of uh, make the biggest jumps. And so I get really excited when we have these types of projects. And so we're currently on one that's looking at dollar spot. And, uh, you know, I wonder if Mr. Buckley uh, kind of talked about some of the stuff that they're doing out there. Yeah. with their host resistance types of research, because I think we're doing the same stuff here in yeah. Wisconsin. And uh, and then we're also doing one of those large-scale collaborative studies on, on snow mold, too. So we're making a lot of good, getting a lot of good data and going to make some good gains here in the next in the next few years. Well, thanks for joining me, Kurt. And I got to tell you, everybody's looking forward to the 3.0 version of the Hockenmeyer snow mold prediction tool uh, that we hope we'll be publishing and naming, making shirts and hats pretty soon. And we'll visit again, I hope, when snow mold season comes around. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Yep. Take care, Frank. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. More pest and stress issues are being identified as being nutrient-related. Low potassium levels in annual bluegrass through the summer can lead to anthracnose and later to winter damage. Low nitrogen levels certainly has been shown to increase anthracnose. In fact, many research projects funded by the plant food company have provided the data for these nutrient solutions. The plant food company has the products and more importantly, the services that support your success in providing high quality playing conditions. That's it. The plant food company wants to help you produce better surfaces for your players. Visit them at plantfoodco.com. (music) 
Emily, we are finishing our national tour of diagnostic centers on this episode of Frankly Speaking, and you are our last stop. We started in Jersey, headed down to the Carolinas with Lee Butler, and then over to Kurt Hockenmeyer in Wisconsin, and now we're out to see you in the Pacific Northwest, one of you know my favorite places in all of the country. And I want to start with looking at last year. How much fear is lingering from the craziness of last year's growing season? Uh, there's definitely a lot of nervousness. I mean, we had one of the driest springs on record, followed by some pretty intense heat with that heat dome. And we saw new diseases that we hadn't seen before. A lot of people got burned by fairy ring and dollar spot, all these things that kind of popped up where they were not expecting it. So there's a little bit of apprehension, not sure what to expect going into this summer. Uh, I think a lot of people are going more on preventative programs at the moment. Okay, that's exactly what I was getting to. Is that driving people to be a little bit more preventative in a way they hadn't been in the past? Because that had to be really rough on the POA, as we've talked about. Yeah, and I think we even saw last year that a, a lot of POA checked out and bent grass had a really good summer, but then we had a very wet winter, and so the POA is back with a vengeance, and there's a lot of apprehension going into this next season of are we going to see more extreme temperatures? Mm -hmm. Are we going to see a resurgence of those same diseases that we saw last year? So, yeah, there's a lot of guys that are scouting and trying to stay on top of things right now. Are we set up for success out there? In other words, that winter you described that I had the glory of seeing the beautiful snow mold, you know, at the field day this past year, which in very good Pacific Northwest fashion rained during it, which was so great. How bad did we come out of the spring this year compared to the dryness we had last year? And are we ready for a hot, dry summer based on what we came through this winter? Well, it's kind of crazy. So we went from last year, one of the driest springs on record, to this year has been one of the wettest springs on record. Uh, Basically, April and May, we've doubled our averages for rain. So with that, you know, we kind of increase our temperatures coming out of spring into that early summer. So we've got high humidity, still a lot of precipitation. So we're still getting a lot of microdochium outbreak. We're getting dollar spot like crazy. Uh, we're seeing a lot of weightier patch and yellow patch. So it's been a really high-pressure spring for diseases which I think is making people a bit nervous about what's to come when we start to get more of an increase in temperatures. So, you know, on the horizon, there's a lot of things to worry about for summer diseases too. So it's been a busy spring trying to dodge the rain to get sprays out right. um, and just see the, the intense pressure we've seen. Now, what about how the guys are managing snow mold? Listen, you guys have been at this for a while. And one of the things that I think you guys have identified for me is, yeah, you can get control of some things with iron in some cases, but we're seeing weaker plants during the season. Is that a true statement? And are you seeing people back off of iron because of that? Yeah, I think that's something that's really been highlighted from Clint doing this long-term study on the effects of these alternative programs, Right. that there really is a trade-off for summer anthracnose pressure. You know, he'll get anthracnose pop up pretty early and it will linger unless you get on a good program early enough for the summertime. So it does make people very conscious of what the trade-off would be for spraying something like iron on a putting green. So we do see people shifting maybe towards more fairway applications where they can kind of get away with some of that stress in the summertime. Okay, well, now we're talking about applying to large acreages, which means budgets are going to get impacted if they've got to start treating fairways on a routine basis for these issues. So, cause iron is cheap compared to fungicide control, right? Yeah. And I think that's why it's been a lot of guys have that in their back pocket of it's a pretty easy application. It's a cheaper application than a lot of these wall to wall fungicides that they're doing. 
One of the things that impressed me at the field day, and well, I'm always impressed there, but now I see you playing around with tall fescue, right? I see that happening. I hear us saying, boy, it was a good thing for Bent, but not so much for Poa. And boy, it was a good winner for Poa and not so much for Bent. You guys are starting to sound a little bit like the transition zone with lots of different grasses being able to do well for periods of time and then not do well. How does that work for you diagnostically when you start seeing sample after sample that just look like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be growing this grass here anymore. Maybe we can't grow poa like we used to here. Maybe we've got to start seeing that shift. The tall fescue gave me that idea. How crazy is it for me to suggest that? Yeah, so I think we're sort of responding to a lot of what people are hearing from elsewhere in the industry. So, you know, there's a lot of research from the Midwest, which is pushing tall fescue and all those benefits. And so we're seeing more of that pop up in the West. So we're working hard to kind of match what we're seeing as far as installations of these different species and how we can optimize some of that management for our specific area. Because, you know, we have a unique climate and we have a lot of issues with tall fescue, but people still want to grow it. So we're trying to find ways where it will persist in our climate. Yeah, and it looks like timing matters. Yes. Yeah, fertilization timing really made a difference as far as the leaf spot and the microdochium pressure for tall fescue. So anthracnose, wetting agents, uh, standard programs... You're pretty close to somebody who knows a lot about anthracnose. There's a lot of people out there who know a lot about anthracnose. I know the wedding agent conversation has come up. Where is the group's thinking on water management, wedding agent, anthracnose in the Pacific Northwest? I'm assuming on Poa Annua. Yeah, yeah. so we've been doing the last couple of summers a lot of research with wetting agents, and we are finding that there is a reduction in disease. And so it's not going to be a cure-all, but we're trying to build out kind of how they did with the BMPs. There's all these little tools that you have that will decrease levels of disease. And this is just maybe another one that superintendents could add into that with the top dressing and the fertilization and the increased mowing height. Like this is perhaps another uh, effective tool to just reduce those levels a little bit more. How worried are you that the snow mold pressure's staying on so long and that if it shifts to warm, those plants are going to be set up for even more trouble? Because I don't think people appreciate, can't you get pink snow mold 12 months a year out there? Microdokium patch? Yeah, we can get it throughout the year, especially in shady sites. It's, uh, it will pop up at any time. And we actually have it really bad right now. And the interesting thing about microdokium this time of year is it doesn't present how you would expect. It actually looks a lot like anthracnose because it kind of has this understory appearance. So we get a lot of calls from people who think they've got anthracnose, but it's actually still residual microdokium patch they're dealing with. Does it streak when you mow over it? Have you seen microdokium patch streak ever? Yes, it definitely does. Um, we have some, some pretty cool pictures of that from Clint's study with the rolling, right. uh, where you get these great star patterns from it moving. But this time of year, because the grass can generally outgrow it, because we're warming our temperatures, right. it's very understory and it doesn't present in those sort of patch ways or streaking ways. It just looks a lot like anthracnose. You know, when I see things change climatically like this, I try to think about how superintendents are responding, right? And that's why I started with that first question, you know, from last year. But, you know, intuitively, especially if you're at really nice clubs that have been there a while, you know, you get in a rhythm of what you're doing and... Having these sort of odd times and odd problems that maybe you've not seen before, I'm not talking about microdochium in particular, but things that come along with the stress that's coming, I wonder if they're sometimes a little more reactive than proactive. Yeah, we're putting out preventative stuff, but at the same time, 
are we paying attention to, you know, the grass is, you know, are we cutting back on a growth regulator to let it grow a little bit? Are we making adaptations or are we sort of walking down the same path and then just adding fungicides to the issue without making some adaptations to our cultural stuff? I think that's very true. And and honestly, last summer really kind of highlighted that effect where we had this freak weather pattern, new things that the people hadn't seen. And, you know, guys who'd been at clubs for 20, 30 years on a program that had been effective for that long. And all it took was one summer of change of high humidity, high heat. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that program's not effective anymore. And now going into this new season, they're having to rethink, okay, is this an effective fungicide for what might come up um, and what we might see with this changing climate? So it, it has been a little bit reactionary, but I know going into this season, people are planning a little bit more for the uncertainty of what might happen. Are we set up for some dry weather up there? I mean, you guys have been dry and warm for a number of summers now. Uh, there's no reason to think it's not going to be like that uh, as well. But it's been nice and moist, you say, coming into this period. I worry that yeah. that means uh, the roots didn't have to work that hard to get any of the water. Is that part of the issue that maybe there's some root maladies, summer patch and other sorts of root problems that might also wreak some havoc if it starts to get hot and dry? That's what I'm thinking too. And, and my biggest concern is, is not always the hot and dry. It's when we have our shoulder season, spring and fall, where it's wet and humid and the temperatures are increasing. Because that's when you're really setting yourself up for those uh, the heavy pressure, you know, we do see summer patch now in Western Oregon. Um, we do see a lot of fairy ring, a lot of these dollar spots. It's really, for me, indicative in the springtime. If we're still warm and it's still raining a lot, that can predict usually a, a pretty bad summer for a lot of folks. The I have to chat with you about it because I've chatted with everybody else about it. Either they brought it up or I brought it up. And your wet conditions are conducive to bringing it up. Where is Pythium root rot? in the scheme of issues you see in the Pacific Northwest, because they are increasing in almost every other climate. We do definitely get pythium. The distinction for us is a lot of times the grass is sort of pushed into that area, overwatering, overfertilizing in the summertime because we have the heat, but they sort of bring that humid climate by a lot of irrigation. So most of the time we don't see it sort of develop naturally. It's usually induced somehow. We did see it last summer, like I said, with that heat dome. But a lot of people have it on their radars now, especially sort of central Oregon areas. Okay, I'll get you out of here promoting a couple of things. First, are you having a summer field day and what's the date? Yes, we're having a summer field day. It is, uh, I believe, the 1st of September, but we are still deciding on the date. We're usually one of the last field days. Okay. Uh, So that will be publicized a bit later. Uh, The other thing I was pleased to see was this apprentice school or this education program that Alex is starting up. I know it isn't your lane, but I'm sure you're a little bit aware of it. Can you talk a little bit about this model? Yes. So I'm actually teaching. This is our PACE Continuing Education Certificate for Golf and Turf Management. It's being taught by myself, Clint Mattix, Ali Kovaleski, and Chaz Schmidt. And we are providing a certificate program. It's sort of geared more towards assistance, people trying to move up in the course. But it is intensive six-week courses centered around golf turf management, irrigation, drainage, insects, diseases. So it's a comprehensive program. And we are running that three sessions a year starting in November. And it is an online program. Excellent. Starting in November. So we can get lots of information between now and then, uh, like a micro-certification, if you will, 
with all of you uh, out there in Oregon. So this is a continuing education arm of OSU. Yes, it is. And there are GCSAA credits that are available. And we're sort of gearing this towards Western Oregon, British Columbia. And we've had a lot of folks from Europe as well that have uh, participated. Yeah, you're going to get me. I'm coming. I am definitely coming to a couple of these sessions. When you guys promote this stuff, I I love these uh, online courses where there's some consistency. You get some consistency of thought among the colleagues. You get great conversation I'm so glad you guys are doing this and and making it accessible. Emily, thanks for taking the time to join me. I hope I see you at the field day. Uh, If not, I definitely will see you out at the Microdokium Day, hopefully a little under a year from now. Absolutely. I look forward to it, Frank. Thanks a lot, Emily. Take care now. Thank you. Big thanks to Rich Buckley, Lee Butler, Kurt Hockenmeyer, and Emily Brathwaite. All of us wish you the best for the growing season. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.